So basically, he could vote 100% of the stock. So he basically controlled the money. You know, he, well, he who has the gold makes the rules. So <laughs> anyway, um, to make a long story short, he came in and gave us the money that we needed to move forward and also really clamped down on organization and finance and bookkeeping and all the things that, that we weren't super good at. And he was great at that. So he really helped us out. But we had to give up over 30% of the company in order to do that. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Paul Taggart. Paul, thanks for doing this. Oh, it's great to be with you. This will be fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So you've done a lot of things in your career, inventor, investor, all sorts of things. How do you introduce yourself? I People ask, what do you do? And I said, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. And, you know, a lot of it's come out of pure desperation in some cases. But I would say I am an entrepreneur. I mean, I, I'm a businessman and I've done a lot of different things and had a lot of experiences with failure and success. So... You know, whatever puts food on the table, keeps the roof over your head. Hey, I'm game. Let's go do it. If yeah. It works. <laughs> well, what I would love to do, it's fun that you have products right here to see for me to kind of like see a, a lifetime worth of product development that you guys have done. What if we went through a few of these different projects and maybe you told us just lessons learned for any entrepreneurs listening today of what you learned on that one and this one. And okay. um, let's go. Let's go back to the the beginning of OGO. I mean, many people know giant giant company these days sold to Callaway, but back when it was just an idea, you were coming out of real estate with Ivory Homes. Tell us tell us a little bit about the beginning there before the massive success. Well, and- this was, you know, 83, 84 that era when interest rates hit 18%, you could go get a CD uh, at the bank. Now think about this for 14, 15%. You know, talk about but, you know, it devastated the real estate world. So you know, I was doing more development stuff and I, I was anyway, uh, and I had a neighbor in Park City, Mike Pratt, who was a car salesman. Get him, he was about to have his second child and his wife was saying, Mike, you got to get a job. And he goes, well, I don't really want a job. He's, he's an entrepreneur. He's one of the most creative people I've ever met. And he came to me and said, look, I've got great ideas. He's, a, he's an idea guy. And he said, if I can come up with a really good idea, would you help me? So I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of this. But anyway, he went through a couple of iterations of different products that we could see this is going to cost way too much money. One was an automobile product, and it's going to take way too long. I said, come to me with something simple, something simple. So he comes to me with this cardboard box shaped like a little locker, miniature locker, and it has a door on it taped with masking tape and magic marker drawings of bottles and lotion and a toothbrush holder, a comb and a mirror. And he goes, it's the locker bag. I'm going to call it the original locker bag. And he opens the door. There's a shelf where you put your clothes and and a place down below where you put your shoes. He says, in this way, you know where everything is. It's totally organized. You can't let your old, your shampoo leak all over your shorts. And in the pocket, the front pocket is a dry pocket, a wet pocket. So you can put your wet swimming suit. I says, wow, now that's an idea. So anyway, I said, okay, let's, where do we get it made? What do we do? So we 
got some help from some people, and he went to Asia, China, uh, Korea, and started sourcing somebody who could make it for him. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, and, and, and I didn't invest a ton of money, but enough to get the test done. We said, well, let's test it. We thought of a name, came, we thought of 100 names, wrote them down, had a think tank um, session, and came up with Ogio. And Ogio actually came from his wife, who worked at the phone company. Every night, they would reconcile the outgoing-only calls, and they called them OGOs. So we added the I and called it OGO. So that's how that name came. <laughs> but, you know, the lesson, you know, talk about lessons, man. The biggest lesson I think we had was obviously to get into the marketplace. It was a product that had to be demonstrated. So this was pre-internet. How do you demonstrate a product, product that's never been seen before? And that's a challenge for everybody today. So that was one of our big challenges. And so this had to, you had to go in and actually display this so people could see it in a, in a retail store. So, you know, we went to Nordstrom and actually got into the Nordstrom in Salt Lake. The, the, the local buyer had the flexibility or the, the power to go put things in her own store and so my wife and I, we had some golf shirts made with our logo on it. My wife and I went down there, and they sent out a mailer and said, the owners of OG will be here demonstrating the new locker bag. So that day, we went down there and demoed the product at Nordstrom in Salt Lake City. And 19 people bought it, and that's pretty good. It sold for fifty nine ninety five, and they were pleased, very happy, and Anyway, to make a long story short, we parlayed that into some other relationships and found a man in, in Aptos, California, Mal Hetzer, who was the master rep for Reebok. And he really helped put us on the map. And, and so if you talk about lessons, we started, we boomed. The demand was way more than our supply, which is a huge problem. How do you get money, enough money to grow? That was an issue for us. Very big challenge. And if you think about this, Jess, we had about a six-month turn on our money. If we spend the money, you had to get a letter of credit, have this made in, eventually it was in Taiwan, but Korea. The letter of credit had to be placed, so that money had to be in place 30 days before they really started making the thing. Then it take them 30 days to make it. Then they ship it, right? takes 22 days to get across the ocean, goes through customs, all that stuff. And then it gets to Salt Lake City. Well, then you ship it to your supply, you know, your re retailers, and they have 30-day terms, and they never pay on time. So you're waiting 45 days. So let's see, that's a month, another month, another month, and then a month, another month before you see the money to buy more product. So how do you deal with that? Big challenge. Huge challenge. You know, it's interesting to think about challenges like that because, you know, you think about a company eventually getting to the place of selling $150 million a year worth of this stuff. You're never going to get there if you didn't, if you didn't solve these problems early. So what, what did solving that problem look like for you guys? Well, we had to bring in an investor. And so here I am as a 36, 37-year-old entrepreneur. We started this company the first year. I think first year we were really in full production. We did about $8 million in sales, and we made a lot of money. It was awesome. We brought in an investor. He was a Jewish fellow who was very successful, and he and I butted heads. And, but he, he controlled. He didn't control. 
he didn't have all the ownership control, but he had a voting trust. So basically, he could vote 100% of the stock. So he basically controlled the money. Or, you know, he, well, he who has the gold makes the rules. So <laughs> anyway, um, to make a long story short, he came in and gave us the money that we needed to move forward and also really clamped down on organization and finance and bookkeeping and all the things that, that we weren't super good at. And he was great at that. So he really helped us out. But we had to give up over 30% of the company in order to do that. It was expensive. And how long was he a part of the business? Oh, a long time. He was probably there 20, 22 years before Mike finally bought him out. He didn't want to be bought out. <laughs> he didn't need the money and he liked, he loved that. It was kind of a project. Yeah. You think about how much conflict there is in entrepreneurship and because, you know, you're inventing the future, right? Yeah. It's not math. It's not two plus two equals four and independently verified. It's like my best guess, your best guess, hopefully a little bit of data, this kind of stuff. When you think about overcoming differences of opinion, so instead of fighting each other, you can fight the competitors, mm-hmm. what have been some of the principles over the years for you of, of getting along with folks that maybe there's some friction early on? Well, for me, I think my biggest obstacle was pride. I mean, I, I really think that's probably most people's obstacle is we're too proud to be, or we're, we're too proud to, to accept people's criticism, their their constructive criticism, if that's a term, we're not willing to listen. We think we know everything or we've got to do it our way. And as I look back on it, had, and I, I learned a lot from this man. I, I, lessons I still use today. You know, he taught me a lot. And, and I'll tell you, one of the things, one of the great lessons he taught me was this, don't lie. Don't BS me. And I, I won't use the real words, but he would ask me all these questions and sometimes I'd have no clue what the answers were. So I'd make something up, you know, and he knew. And finally he came to me and he says, Taggart, don't lie to me. Don't BS me. If you don't know the answer to the question, just say, I don't know. And then go figure it out and come back and we'll talk about it. And that was a super important lesson as a 35, 36 year old young man to say, no, I don't know the answer. He, and he knew that I was BSing him and just flat out called me out, you know, and it was like, wow, thank you. And, you know, people know if you're telling the truth, if you're not, or eventually they find out. So that, and, and so for me, I needed to learn to listen and to understand that, hey, I don't know everything. And that there are people that are way smarter than I am that I should be listening to and, and hearkening and following their counsel. And I think if you can have a humble heart, and an open mind and really willing to be a sponge and listen, you're going to be a lot better off and you can solve a lot of problems. But both parties have got to be willing to do that. Solid advice. And did you, did you stay at, at OGO for like 10, 12 years? How long no, were you no, there? No. I, I actually, as an, as a, as a manager, I was only there for about three years, three and a half years. And in 94, so it started in 87, I left in 90. Okay. And because he and I just, it wasn't a good mix. And he, he asked me to leave, basically. He said, look, we need Mike. We don't need you. You got to go away. And so anyway, I was on the but board. But you stayed in as an investor for I a while? I had my ownership and stayed on. But in 94, they gave me an offer and said, we're buying you out. And so by 94, I was gone. And they took it to a whole new level, you know, the, the remaining years. And it was, it, it became a wonderful company. And 
and Callaway now owns it. So yeah. So let's let's switch to another product here for a minute. I'm I'm looking at the airlock here, bike pump plus plus bike lock, and you said that it's a product you learned the most on. Yeah, well, right at the when Ogio was going out, you know, it's like now what am I going to do? I mean, this was 1990, 91, and you know, I was still doing some real estate stuff, and but. Um, a friend or a, an acquaintance knew what I was doing at OG who came to me with this product called Ready Lock, and we morphed it into Air Lock. It's, it's a combination bicycle lock and air pump that fits around your down tube, but you can see it right here. It's an amazing product, wonderful product. And, you know, so we just, I was so motivated to get out and prove to the world that, hey, I, we can do this, and, and that I really did, did learn a few things at OGO that. I said, let's go do it. So we started a company called Striders to do this product. And we you know, invested a lot of money in it. And we got it developed and, and built. But, you know, this is the biking industry, Jess. It's a fickle industry. There's probably 5,000 independent bike shop owners all over the United States, let alone the world. But most, many of them are bike enthusiasts. They're not really businessmen. They're bike enthusiasts. So you know, boy, there's multiple lessons to be learned here about this. You know, who is your market? Who who are you really selling to? How big is it? What are they like? What are their uh, passions? Their their pet peeves? Their their personal thoughts about bike protection? How do I protect my bike? Well, boy, did we learn a lot about that? Everybody's got their own opinions. You know, we were able to get Greg LeMond, who at that time was Sportsman of the Year, Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year on the cover, three-time Tour de France winner, to help us and endorse the product. We are thinking, hey, this is a slam dunk. I thought that I'd gone around and really tested the market. I went to like six cities, went into a whole bunch of bike shops and said, what do you think of this? Every single one of them said, God, this is great. We could sell this. Well, I had 19, that was 19 bike shops around the country. Well, we finally started to sell it. And if we got it into a bike store or shop where the, the owner really liked it or the people liked it, and they, again, needed to be demonstrated. No one's ever seen this before. This is pre-internet, right? And the guy talked about it, demonstrated it, they'd sell them. Highland Schwinn on Highland Drive here in Salt Lake City, he'd sell 25 a month. Think if you had 1,000 bike shops selling 25 a month. That's a good business. Well, and we, we said, well, it, it, this thing costs us about $14 to make, okay? Well, you do the math. If, if I sell this for, if it costs me 14 bucks, what have I got to sell it for in order to make a profit, to have a business? Any thoughts on that? Let's I don't do know. quick math. Yeah, I don't know. Like I hear a quick rule of thumb of you want to try and double your, <laughs> double your cost if you can, but I don't know. Well, at least you want a keystone, but the, then the bike shop wants a keystone. That's 100% yeah. markup. So if I sell this for $34 or $38, $28, cost me $14, $28, they want to sell it for $56, right? Well, a bike lock and a pump for $56, we think, well, that's a pretty good deal. That's a really good deal. So here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. Cost-to-value ratio. Can you be successful with your product, you know, and we had patent protection, which is another real question. We had a really good patent. Can you be successful with a cost-to-value ratio of four to one, right? So if it's 
$59, 28 times two is what, 56, so $59 to $14. That's four to one. Can you be successful? Maybe, maybe, but three to one, two to one, no way. Well, so we got this in Walmart. We got this in Shopco, right? And they came and said, look, we're really sorry, but everybody we talked to and what we're hearing is we could sell this all day long for twenty four ninety five. Now think about it. You don't have a company. You don't have a business at that price. We were in a ready, fire, aim mood. Because Walmart wants to buy it for fourteen to sell it. That's right. At that price. Well, if they're going to sell it for twenty four, they want to buy it for eleven. Yeah. Or twelve. You right? can't even make it. For and you can't even make it for twelve. The cost to value ratio did not work. If you don't have, if the value of this product, and, and it doesn't matter what I think, it makes no difference what I think or those 19 people that I went and interviewed around the country. It doesn't matter what they think. What matters is what the general public thinks, the buyer, the end user thinks. That's what matters. And so we didn't have a business. How how far were you into it by then? Oh, probably three and a half, four hundred thousand, three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars. And you know, we were in Halfords in in England, in Europe. They have four hundred stores, and in we had really good distribution. Sell through wasn't good. Price was too high, way too high. And we didn't do our homework. We didn't get that third party validation that everybody needs before you go out and launch a product. So if you don't do your homework and ask the right questions up front and really pound on those questions and, and di- dig deep, very highly likely you, you will not succeed. It's tough lessons. Yeah, very tough lessons. Lost a lot of money, spent three years of my life doing this, and, you know, it was hard. Yeah. Uh, so from there, what did you do next? Well, that that time real estate got better, and so I, I really did a lot of real estate. But and and you meet a lot of people. But eventually, I, a group from Atlanta came and and knew a little bit about what I was doing. We were in Park City doing development up there, and met some people that had a little microdermabrasion, and it's a skin sander with suction. I mean, microdermabrasion's been around for a long time but mostly done in doctor's office, dermatologist's office, and estheticians. And they have these $10,000 machines that either sandblast your face with, with aluminum oxide crystals and then have a vacuum suction that stimulates collagen. It, it, it stimulates blood flow and collagen. Well, these guys came and said, look, we have an idea. We think that we can build something like this that can be used at home. And And I said, wow, that sounds interesting. So... We put together a, a think tank and had a lot of discussions, and I put up quite a bit of money to, to this to develop it. And, and what year is this when that started? This was 2004. Okay. So our, my family and I went to the Philippines to do volunteer work, and I took my four kids and my wife, and we just, after Ojo paid, gave us a buyout, we said, let's take a year off and go really focus on what matters most. And it was a wonderful experience. And then I got back and did some development work, and that's how I ran into these people in Atlanta. So, but again, I'd learned a lot. By that time, I, I knew a lot about, more about what questions to ask. You know, can you get patent protection? 
can you, because if you come out and you, you launch this product and you don't have good protection, someone's going to say, wow, great product. I mean, Procter and Gamble or, or Colgate or, or, you know, some of these big companies, Estee Lauder is going to come out and say, thank you very much. We have this, we're going to go sell a gazillion of them. Thank for, thank you for developing this for us. You know, that's a question you need to ask. What happens if, if, if somebody knocks us off and how do I protect myself? You know, what kind of distribution do I have? And so we were asking all these questions. And so we actually got this developed. We built 2000 of them, Jess, and we went out and I said, we got to test this because it doesn't really matter again what we think. And for people, you know, obviously who can't see this, I mean, like it's, it's handheld. Like this is not a giant, no, this is not a giant machine. I mean, it's like a little Dremel tool. (laughs) Yeah. It looks like a, looks like a big electric toothpaste handle to me. Yeah. It does kind of like it's not, it's not some huge $10,000 machine. No. And, and you know, again, cost to value ratio and and what, what, what would, what would people really be willing to pay for? What do these sell for? Well, the typical one now sells for 159. When I launched it, it was 179. So, and again, it was like, I don't know what people pay. Here's what we learned. People typically pay between a hundred and $150 per treatment, per treatment at the doctor's office or the, or the esthetician. So we thought, well, if they own this and they can do it every week on their own. And it really does work the same as the $10,000 machine at, you know, in the doctor's office. Hey, 179, that's a deal. Again, cost to value. What do people value this at? What, how, how valuable is this to you or the housewife who's going to use it? And it's interesting when you talk about pricing because there's the logical side of pricing and there's the emotional side of pricing, right? Exactly. And, and I was told this again. This is something somebody told me. He says, look, p- women on food stamps, all right, who have no money to go buy food, they still will come and buy lipstick. Beauty is really important to a lot of people. And the, compare the bike industry to the beauty industry. It's night and day difference. A multi, multi-billion dollar industry compared to a fickle, very pretty, I mean, bikes are huge, but nothing like the beauty industry. So those are all factors to consider. But, you know, so we tested. And this was right at the time Clarisonic was coming out with their face cleaner, the, the scrubber. Okay. And it was huge. I mean, if you went to any retail store that sold beauty products, Clarisonic was big. Big displays. You know, I think Clarisonic sold for $500 million to Estee Lauder or anyway, one of the big ones. And they were going crazy. So we launch, we go out and test and come to find out that the patent that they thought they had, they were infringing on someone else's patent. So big strike against us. Second issue is people were afraid of microderm. They were scared of it because you could torture skin. And they were afraid of the liability. So that was a problem. This, the, the device industry back then, Jess, was just beginning to happen for beauty. Consumer devices, not doctors or estheticians, professionals. So it was a it was a pioneering effort. So it didn't work, and 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 the people, 
that we were with, they were fighting among themselves. And it was like, you know what? This is dysfunctional. This isn't going to work. So we, we tanked it. We tanked it in 2004. I just, I said, look, we're not doing this. We got patent problems. You've got infighting among yourselves and we don't get along and you're too impatient and you don't, you know, you're not patient enough to do this testing, third party validation. And so we just tanked it. We put 1,800 units in the warehouse and they just sat there till 2009, 2010. Okay. So we we have to cut the, we're cutting the episodes in half. Okay. And what's, <laughs> I think this is like a great cliffhanger right here because I know that you go on to do millions and millions of dollars in business. And I think this is like a great cliffhanger. It's going to get people to listen to part two. So let's end here for part one, but maybe, well, I think it's a great part 10. Everybody tune back in if you want to find out how from, from a tanked product this turns into millions of dollars. Thanks, everyone.